So I thought I would begin the Dharma talk tonight uh, with some of the same themes we've been working with, which is, of course, first of all, what's it like to practice right now as you listen to the Dharma talk? <clears throat> and for me, it's like, what's it like to practice right now as I give the Dharma talk? And I always find it makes, <clears throat> I find life very interesting uh, as practice, or I could say it a little more um, clearly to say that um, life is practice, and practice is life, For really personally at this point, there's no difference. <clears throat> and I'll say more about that paradox as I go through the talk tonight. Um, but I also want to point to the investigative quality of mind that we started to arouse or light up today with the inquiry. Because as I sat and reflected and thought about the talk tonight, the, it first came as a question. And so I'll put the question out, which is, what is it to age? What is it to age? Right? Instead of assuming that I know or we know, let's be curious or interested or wondering about what does that mean to age? And what ages, right? What ages if things age? Is it the <clears throat> body that ages, right? And that seems pretty clear to me, right? And does the heart age? Does the mind age? Does Buddha nature age? What, what ages? And of course, when I ask a question like this, I'm uh, luckily, lucky that I don't have to answer it right to you, but I can just raise the question and start to seed the question for all of us, because it's a question that we're living with, which is, oh, what is it to age, and what does it mean to age, and what does it mean to, as Anna was saying, apply the Buddhist understanding at this phase of life? That's called, you know, aged. <clears throat> and one of the things I've seen, one of the impacts I've seen for myself and maybe for you of aging is that it's humbling to age. And I like the word humble and I associate it with a few other words. So there's the word humble and it has the same root as the word humus, the word humus. And of course, humus is 
of the earth, right? It's the ground you miss. <clears throat> and I associate it with a Yiddish word, which is Hamish. So, Yumis, um, uh, humble, Yumis, and Hamish, in my heart and mind, are related. And Hamish is a Yiddish word. If, some, if you call somebody Hamish, it means they have integrity. You don't have to think about them. You can trust them because they're real, real people with a capital R, meaning they have integrity. And one of, part of the weave here is that um, the, the, um, one of the impacts of humble is humility that we start to have or display or manifest a certain kind of humility. And humility, which I looked up in the dictionary, said is widely seen as a virtue in many religious and philosophical traditions. Right? Humility is a virtue. Right? And virtue has a nice meaning in Buddhism. It also means power. And I like, I like that because there's a power to our virtues, to our integrity. And it went on in the dictionary. It said, in religious context, this can mean a recognition of the oneself in relation to the God, God or deities, right? And the submission to the deity as a member of that religion. And of course, I would retranslate it for Buddhism, right? It means a recognition of um, oneself in relation to the Dharma and to the potential for awakening. <clears throat> and uh, I wouldn't use the word submission, although it's sometimes we like to use the word surrender. It's the letting go to the Dharma that we do in Buddhist practice. We, we learn about the Dharma and we give ourselves to the Dharma. And in the dictionary it went on to say, outside of the religious context, humility is defined as, a self, as self-restraint from excessive vanity and, can, and one can possess moral or ethical dimensions. It can possess moral or ethical dimensions. And so that's, I again hear the integrity in humility that we come down to the ground, the earth of who and what we are, and we start to act in alignment with the way things are, with the nature of reality. And so we come into harmony with this arising and passing of reality that's happening at every moment. It's not a problem from that perspective. <clears throat> and um, I can't remember if it was said here in the room or not, but it was definitely um, said in one of the teacher meetings that um, 
uh, one of our students, um, I just finished teaching the Dedicated Practitioners Program, uh, not, excuse me, the Community Dharma Leaders Program, which had been going for two years and ended. And one of the students there has been dying for the last six months or a year, and um, Pauletta uh, Chanko uh, Lowry. And Pauletta was dying, and we all knew she was dying, and she kept participating and and uh, was beautiful to have her there, even at this last retreat, which was, I, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And uh, she died uh, a few days ago. And um, so I got some information people some emails were sent to me about her and and um, one of the interesting things is that she because the community dharma leaders is um, were training people to teach the dharma in their local communities right and so she had a small sitting group she was leading as part of her training and uh, and the sitting group met in the la- like a week before she died and um, it meant she couldn't go to the sitting group. Everybody came to her house, and she gave her last Dharma talk. And uh, and uh, what I was told was her last Dharma talk was about letting go, which she knew about and knows about and experienced. And then I also got an email from one of my colleagues who'd been mentoring her personally and told me, she said, she wrote, this is from Sharda Rogel. She said, I had a very lucid conversation with her last Monday. That's not yesterday, but a week ago. I had a very lucid conversation with her um, uh, last Monday sitting on her bed. She was ready to leave her body because at that point it was painful to be alive. And she was at peace. She had her family around her for the last two weeks, taking care of her and being very loving. And it seemed like a beautiful way to go. And so this is, you know, this is one of the possibilities of what can happen as we age and get ill because bodies tend to get ill at some point and we die which is also part of what happens naturally, normally. It's paradoxically, it's not a mistake to die. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the retreat. But it's, and, and I'm just bringing this in because the whole process of aging, dying, awakening is everywhere, is here, is here with us in this retreat. And we're focusing on it, we're looking at it, we're exploring it, we're learning about it. But it's, it's everywhere, it's in our life at all time. We're always aging, right? Do you, anybody remember being 20? Remember that? Anybody not remember? Right? Like, you know, that was really real, wasn't it? Where is that? And of course, I could substitute 20, 30, 40, 50, right? 
I mean, those were all real, that was all real life and beautiful or difficult or both, probably for most of us, up and down. But it arises and passes, arises and passes, arises and passes. It's just, that's how life is. It's not a mistake. And today, uh, I don't know if Anna or Kamala mentioned this, but I had to go to a board meeting for Spirit Rock, which is why I wasn't here in the morning. And... uh, uh, and it was it was nice. I don't usually go to board meetings, but I got recruited for this one. So and uh, so I went, and it was interesting because I met some of the people who were on the board, and I thought, oh, when I heard, and they were checking in, right? Which we do a lot of check in at Spirit Rock, and uh, you know. <laughs> It has its pluses and minuses, but it was interesting to hear because people would check in. I would think, oh, they should be at this retreat, you know. (laughs) This retreat would be, and I talked to a a man who I'd never met before, but he told me he was 71, and I was like, oh, yeah, you should be at this retreat. This would be a good retreat for you. And he was very accomplished, lovely, quite intelligent man, but, you know, he's 71, It's kind of something we share about aging. Things happen. And so, and really, here, what I wrote down is I heard people talking about the changes that come with age, talking about a heart problem, and I can't remember the word, when you have fast heartbeat. AFib, AFib. Yeah, talking about AFib and having to go to the hospital and you know, and this is not, you know, and it's of course the question we always ask is, oh, what did I do wrong? And I can tell you what you did wrong. You got born. That's the, the that happens, you know. And, you know, and somebody else, good friend of mine, is having breathing problems and he's been very healthy his whole life and, you know, done all the right things and it's, this problem has not gone away. And it's concerning, you know. Of course, I'm very concerned about him, but it's part of what happens with aging and bodies. And of course, there was also the other side of aging, which is what I call the wow side of aging. That's W-O-W, wow. Like, isn't it wild to be here? at all, right? And to still be here when we could not be here? I mean, I keep finding it to be a little bit of a wow to be here and to be, you know, half cognizant of reality, you know? I mean, you know, I don't have everything I used to have, but I have enough so that I'm here. And so one of the gentlemen was talking about being a grandfather and what that was like, especially taking his grandson to Fenway Park in Boston. And it might be a guy thing, but, you know, it's a baseball thing. And <laughs> and I could relate to that all. You know, I would love to have grandchildren, and it's not happening yet. And, 
you know, I still have enough wisdom never to say to my daughter, you should have children, right? <laughs> Even though I would like that, it's still her life, you know. And so one of the things I'm pointing at here is the paradox of aging. Like it's difficult and things happen and we're not in control, right? Everybody got that. Of the whole talk, that's the best thing I'm going to say all night. We're, we're not in control. And we're not in control. <clears throat> and yet, as, um, as it's, it's written in the Lankavatara Sutra, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they, this is from the Buddha in the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. <laughs> now that's a good teaching, I think. I think the Buddha nailed it right there. Because we're always looking for the sure thing. Like, okay, this is it. This is right. This is the way. This is. And if you can find it, great. But I keep seeing, oh, there's more to reality than any one way, any one thing. And so what we're doing here is exploring reality at this age, right? Where everything has changed since 20, 30, 40, 50, even 54 for you 55-year-olds who slid in here. Right, the young ones, you know. <clears throat> and we may be able to see that paradoxically aging is ordinary and has extraordinary potential for us. Partly because we're here and we've lived a life, right? Because, you know, at a certain point in, in human history, all of us would be ancient. Right, but the the age rate keeps rising, which I believe you mentioned. Right, like '90s, the highest growing population. I don't even know if I want to be in that population ever. But you know, it's not up to me. I'm not in control. Right, either way. And so aging, keeping looking and exploring and sitting with what's here. Right? And what's, what is this? Right? This is part of the investigative practice. Um, in, in Zen, that's a very common um, uh, phrase. What is this? Period. And that's your practice to answer that question. And of course, there's no, it's not a cognitive answer. It's often a paradoxical answer that the Roshi will accept as, oh, ding, you get it, because it's not this or that, right or wrong, good or bad. It's, it's all of it. And even awareness, which we're utilizing awareness here, we're being aware of our bodies, hearts, mind, each moment, right? And the potential for awareness arises in every moment. But it's paradoxical because it doesn't mean awareness is here all the time. 
but the potential for it to rise is here. And of course, this is a very Eugene, I won't quote, this is not the Buddha, but it's Eugene, uh, who's, you know, okay. Um, he said, awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. Awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. We get bound to things. Our identity gets bound to things. But the, the rising and passing of each moment is not bound to anything. And it's one of the beautiful paradoxes of the Dharma. That it's not easy to understand conceptually. We want to keep looking experientially at each moment arising and passing and the knowing of it that arises and passes. I always liked Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher. He said, um, he said, when I realized no moment could be repeated, when I realized no moment could be repeated, I was awakened. Because right? we keep thinking the same thing happens at times, or is going to happen, or I know what this is. And, you know, we have some idea of what things are, and we know some things. But what about the truth that every moment is totally new? Like this moment has never been here before, even if it looks familiar to us, even if we can put it in our data bank in the right file, it's still brand new right now. This moment it has never come before and will actually never come again. It's just this. Again, another kind of Zen way of saying it. This, just this, the simplicity of being, the simplicity of reality. <clears throat> and practice is paradoxical. You know, we often think we're going to do it. And we have our input. And our actions, our intention, our, our, our um, dedication, our steadfastness, all very important, wonderful. But we can't do it. The Dharma does us. We don't do the Dharma. The Dharma reveals the truth or the way things are or the nature of reality. I'm using different phrases to point at something that can't quite be described. <clears throat> and personally, I think that it wouldn't be liberating if we could just do it mechanically. You know, otherwise we could make general motors and sell it out of the Dharma, you know, because that's what humans do with things that they can do and make and create. And 
And so I like the paradox that comes with practice and with human life. Because when we start to open to the paradox, we start to relax and open to the way things are. I always like the paradoxical phrase from the poet T.S. Eliot. He said, teach us to care. Teach us to care and not to care. And to my heart and mind, oh, that's good dharma. Teach us to care and not to care. And he's not saying one or the other. He's saying teach us to care and not to care at the same time that we totally care and we also know something about not holding on to the caring at the same time because that's be starting to let us be in alignment with reality, with the truth of the way things are. And it's why we want to stay very relaxed about what's happening here and want to stay very relaxed about how we relate to what's happening here. Meaning relaxed means kind. We want to be kind to ourselves. We don't want to judge ourselves. We don't want to be harsh with ourselves or critical with ourselves. And the, and the relaxing is part of, and so that's part of the caring about ourselves. We want to care. And also, we also want to not care, which is we don't even want to think about this. We want to relax and just be and be here and see what we discover here at age 55 or 60 or 65 or 70 or 75 or 80 or 85 or 90. We have anybody... In their 90s here? Let me see. I don't know if we do. I don't think so. Okay. 80s? Oh, we got a young crowd. 70s? Okay, great. Oh, yeah, plenty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the paradox of the Dharma is sitting here. And the Buddha, one of the ways the Buddha described it, actually, this is not the Buddha. This is somebody I think of as the Buddha, um, um, which is Ryo Khan, um, <clears throat> who is a poet and a, and a monk uh, in the 1700s in Japan. And he said, the Buddha, Buddha is your mind. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? That's good. Who laughed? That was a good laughter. That was good. You ding, you got it. <laughs> uh. But it's really the paradox that's pointed to in spirituality is in many traditions. This is from St. Francis of Assisi. He said, what you are looking for 
is what is looking. Right? Beautiful understanding. What you are looking for is what is looking. And I have a lot of great paradox quotes here. Here, Alan Watts said it this way. He said, when we look for things, there is nothing but mind. When we look for things, there is nothing but mind. And when we look for mind, there is nothing but things. <laughs> and I'm saying these not just as good quotes, but their teachings. Look for yourself, right? When you look. You know, there's nothing but mind. And when you look for mind, there's nothing but things. And so it starts to point us, it starts to take us beyond the familiar, beyond the habitual, beyond the usual way that we see the world or relate to reality or each moment or now. Because as I think I said earlier, the whole Dharma is sitting right here. It's already right here. It, nowhere else. Where, where else could it be if it's not here? Right? I mean, this is Spirit Rock. We can't. We'd have to just find another retreat center on a bigger hill. Oh, it's up there. It's at, you know, this temple or that monastery or that. But it's actually right here wherever we are. And that's why I love the Buddha's teaching the potential for any and each of us to wake up because that's what he discovered as a human being, not as divinity, not as a god. And part of the blessings, maybe I could say, of of aging, part of the wisdom of aging, is that humility that lets us get simpler. Like, this is it. Right? It's funny, I just officiated a wedding for uh, a new member of my family, meaning my father-in-law's girlfriend's son. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's California. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I f my wife and I both officiated the wedding. And I said one of the things I like to say when I officiate a wed wedding, you know, because there's a lot of buildup to the wedding and we're standing there in front of all these people. And I said to them, this is it. This is it. Get here now. Because this is it. Hopefully this is the only time you're going to be married. And I can say that because I've been married more than once. And, you know, and so it's true for all of us about our life and about aging. This is it, right? I mean, you know, maybe we have 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years more or something, but not much more than that. And we've already seen how quickly it goes, right? It's just, right? 
I mean, really, I mean, I kind of remember my 20s, but not much, meaning, meaning enough, but, but really, every day, oh, what happened on, you know, you know, June 6th and when I was 20? I don't remember, and who cares, right? Because it's gone. And so part of what may be possible for us as we age is to move into the simplicity where we're not adding anything on to this moment. We're simply being present, being aware, awake, here, now, to the simplicity of the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling. That's just here. And... One of my favorite teachings in the Buddhist tradition is the story of Bahia, of the bark cloth. Bahia, I love his name, Bahia of the bark cloth. So uh, does that make sense, Bahia? You all know a Bahia of the bark cloth? No. So it tells you what kind of gear he's been wearing, the bark cloth. Because you can get that at a lot of stores in the Buddhist time. You could... You could go to Walmart and get bark cloth, meaning you could take it off the trees, and that's what you wore, right? And uh, uh, Bahia was interested in waking up, and he had done certain practices, and he hadn't woke up. I'm just remembering the whole story now. And he done certain practices, and he hadn't woke up, and so he asked for help. And I think a deva, somebody from the god realms, came down and said, basically, you're doing the wrong practice. And he said, well, what should I do? And, and somehow the, the deva said, there's somebody who really is awake right now, and you should go see him. And Bahia said, where? Where is he? And, oh, you know, he's like 30, 100 miles away or something, a big distance. And in his... Um, in his devotion and in his dedication, Bahia gets there overnight, right? It's, you know, it's part of the mythology and it's a beautiful story. And Bahia gets there and he's trying to find the Buddha. He knows it's the Buddha and he starts asking and people say, oh, he's there, or he's there. And finally he goes and by the time he gets to the Buddha, it's right before alms round. And so the Buddha's, walking, carrying his his bowl to go get food. And Bahia says, please, you know, your honor, um, teach me the Dharma. And and the Buddha says, well, it's not the right time, Bahia. And uh, Bahia says, well, I came from a long distance, and he's persistent with the Buddha. He says, I came from a long distance, and I really want the teachings. And the Buddha said, no, I can't do it now. There's not time. And Bahia undercuts the, the Buddha in a beautiful way. He says, well, I need to know because we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And if something happens, I won't get the teachings from you. And, the, and it's, yeah, he, he, he pulls a trump card of impermanence <laughs> on the Buddha. And the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you a brief, concise teaching. And here's part of the teaching he gives Bahia. He says, In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. 
in the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized is merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. So you get what he's saying? He's saying in the scene, there is just the scene in the heard. There'll be merely what is heard. In the sense, just merely what is sensed. In the cognized, merely what is cognized. And as I translate this in my language, I say, oh yeah, there's no add-on. There's the simplicity of seeing or hearing or sensing or thinking, but there's no add-on to it. There's just each moment and each experience. And then he continues to say, when Bahia, in the seen will be merely what is seen, in the heard merely what is heard, in the sense merely what is sensed, in the cognized will be merely what is cognized, then Bahia, you will not, you will be, um, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you will not be with that, then Bahia, you will not be in that. When Bahia, you are not in that, then Bahia, you will neither be here, nor there, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. So he gives a very profound, simple, paradoxical teaching pointing Bahia at freedom, right? When you're just with the seen, heard, sense, cognized, you will not be with that. Then, Bahia, you will not be with that. And that's in quotes. When, Bahia, you will not, you are not, uh, quote, unquote, with that. Then, Bahia, you are not, quote, unquote, in that. When, Bahia, you are not quote unquote, in that, then Bahia, you will be neither here nor there nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And so there's a letting go that he's pointing at of the usual, familiar, ordinary, conventional identity that we're always, it's always being reinforced by conditioning, by causes and conditions of thinking here and there and yes and no, right and wrong, and me and you. And so part of what comes with the wisdom of aging can lead us to freedom. And part of what can help support Part of what supports that is a certain kind of equanimity that comes with age, what I call the wisdom of aging. It's the equanimity of having seen, had a life and seen a whole life and seen the ups and downs and goods and bads and rights and wrongs and, and, and see, oh, it's, that's, it's just what life does. We're not doing it. Even though we have our part, we're not in control of it. It keeps doing us, just like the Dharma starts to do us. And so we start to see things from a different perspective because of aging. Right? It's a different perspective. Of, and tell me if I'm wrong, then when, when I was 20, 
this wasn't exactly the perspective I had, or when I was 30, or when I was 40, or even when I was 50, and I'm 68 now. And it's a different perspective. And I keep being wowed or surprised by how beautiful it is to have a bigger picture of life, human life, and what it is to be a human. And, and so the word that I'm ta- pointing at, equanimity, is in the Theravadan tradition, it's called upekka. In the, in the Mahayana, it's upeksha, upeksha. And upa means over, and iksh means to look, to look over. And it's, it's the vision and understanding is from the highest view, right? And that's part of my understanding of what brings equanimity, is we start to have the big view, the long view, the full view, which is not something we're in control of what's happening, we start to see, oh, this is how it is. This is how it is. And it's a little bit like if you ever go up to a mountaintop, if you've been down in a valley and you go up to a mountaintop, you have a whole different perspective. Oh, look, that's where I've been. But here it's like this, right? Or if we look at the pictures of the earth that the people who went to the moon took, and it's like, oh, this is where we are. Because we think we're the whole world. And then we see, whoa, this is the whole world, Earth. And then we see, oh, even Earth is just a little thing in a big universe, right? It's not the whole thing at all. And so we start to see it come into alignment with the way things are. And this brings equanimity. And so knowing life from many angles as we age, we, we know what it is to be a kid. We all, we all were kids, right? Everybody remember being a kid? I mean, a little kid, a toddler, and then a young a kid, you know, an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a preteen, right? Or a teenager, right? Those were great years, right? <laughs> Sometimes, well, once in a while, <laughs> and not not for me. <laughs> but I mean, it had its ups and downs, and and then twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, and we start to we start to shift our perspective a little, because we start to see the big picture. We start to be able to sit in the seat of maturation. And it's a beautiful, I like the term, it's, to be honest, it's my favorite way to describe awakening, is maturation. Because the Buddha discovered a maturation that was beyond the conventional maturation. Right? He was already a mature guy, you know, a prince, and, you know, he'd done everything. He'd been a total hedonist and been an ascetic, and but he discovered a whole nother level of the potential of human maturation, of what's possible for us as human beings to grow up or wake up either way. 
and it's available to all of us. <clears throat> and so the beautiful qualities that the Buddha often would describe about waking up are also can come with aging, which is patience. <clears throat> Excuse me, patience. We learn to be a little more patient with life because we've been around, right? And hopefully we keep learning to be patient and kind to ourselves because we're not perfect, right? We don't need to judge ourselves or judge our practice. What we want to do is give ourselves to practice and let the Dharma do us. There's a beautiful phrase in Zen that I like very much. They talk about practice. What, what is it to practice? Is to be yourself all the way. Be yourself all the way. Be yourself all the way to the end. All the way to the end of self. Be yourself all the way to the end of self. And that's, I love that understanding. Because it understands the value of self and the value of not self also. The value of letting go. So let's sit for a minute before. As you sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.